This is the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 64. I'm your host, Dill, and today we welcome Australian Americana singer-songwriter Katie Cole. Yes, you heard that right. Katie is Australian, and if she were to be boxed into a genre, it would most likely be Americana. Now, Katie has one of the most interesting stories out there of leaving Melbourne for L.A. to pursue a life in music. She's had some great opportunities and has worked with some great people, as you're about to hear. I met up with Katie while she was playing keyboards and singing backup vocals for a little-known band out of the Midwest called The Smashing Pumpkins, and our conversation about making her big move to the States, her do-it-yourself marketing efforts, and the pitfalls of crowdfunding went a little something like this. what I've known so far because I talked to so many people that you know their big thing is you know going from the east coast to the west coast whereas yeah. <laughs> if only it was that easy for you yeah I I obviously moved from Australia to Los Angeles then to Nashville and I think it's funny because I mean a lot of people move to Los Angeles from international or interstate because Los Angeles is you know big city flashlights and Hollywood and all that stuff but um now that I live in Nashville, I find it kind of hysterical and I have to laugh internally so that I'm not offensive to anybody. But when they tell me they've moved from like North Carolina or Kentucky and I'm just like... <laughs> you don't know how easy you have it. I'm, I'm just like, oh, that's so, you know, it's good for you, you know. And they're like, oh, they only get home every like couple of months. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, wow, that must be really tough. Like, I get home maybe every couple of years if I'm lucky. Oh, really? Is that how uh, infrequent? Um, one of the first, <laughs> you know, in, in talking with the financials of, you know, even before you talk about the music industry, but music but on its own, one of the first hurdles I, I know there is is getting, when you're a child and you show interest in an instrument. You know, I know a lot of people have, you know, I had a, I don't even know where it came from, I had a guitar lying around the house, but I like, I fell in love with the drums. Mm-hmm. So right away my parents are going to be like, you know, when you're at that age where you go through fads every so often, they're like, we're not going to shell yeah. a couple hundred bucks for drums that are going to sit in the attic, you know, in two months. Did you have anything like that? Like, I, I know you started on piano. Well, I grew up in a pretty musical family. Um, I mean, both my parents played instruments. My dad was very fluent on piano, as was my mom. My dad was a trained vocalist, but was never a professional. And I think my mum also had other other musical interests. I know there was other musicians throughout the family. I've looked down like my mum's family line and found um, yeah other musicians. There's a really old photograph. I took a photograph of a photograph. I know that sounds ridiculous. When I was at my mum's a number of years ago, and it was like a picture, like a really old school sort of tin type almost looking picture of like it was her great grandfather and his, and his brothers, and they were all playing like cello and piano. And, I was just like, okay, so there's music down that line of the family, and I know that my grandfather on my dad's side also played, uh, I think he played drums and in a jazz band, and like there was just, there's musicians. So I grew up in the, in, in a very musical context, and uh, even though my parents divorced when I was quite young, my mum sort of brought me and my sister up on watching Woodstock and Isle of Wight and watching this guitar solo, so she was very intense about her um, her focus towards music, musicians, and just excellence in the variety of genres that she uh, exposed to me. So when I showed an interest in music, and as did my sister, we both sang from, you know, mm-hmm. as we were toddlers, and we never, I think we never joined any of the official Australian choirs, but we were 
we were tested for pitch and accuracy when we were quite young and both of us had perfect pitch and we just never I think you're just born with that stuff I suppose right, right. Um, but I picked up piano when I was quite young just from ear and just taught myself and there was always did you an have instrument. a piano in the house yes okay. there was always just an instrument or something around the house and started playing guitar when I was uh, 14 I think in high school and my mum bought me a terrible electric guitar it was just like the cheapest electric <laughs> guitar possible um, but I was super grateful because I was it was a very low-income family so it was a big deal um, started playing live music when I was 16 so started saving up for better instruments then um, so when I was 17 I got my first actual real better guitar okay as a teenager as a teenager who goes and gets a job, like say if you're an American, you go work for a fast food joint. Was that your yeah. primary means of income was, I, was well, I No, I did both. I did the um, like working at a supermarket thing when I was, I think as soon as I was old enough, so I would have been 15 when I got that job and started gigging at 16. So I was a professional and paid. So I had that part-time job and then my music part-time job and I was always paid as a professional, as a musician. So it started as just... Uh, like Saturdays and Sundays because I was still um, in high school to also some Friday nights, also some this, and it just graduated on and on and on until I um, obviously got out of high school and, and it just became a three, four, five, six, seven nights a week situation. At what point, how, how old are you when you're thinking you're all in on this? I had, I was, uh, I suppose dissuaded from my like guidance counselors in high school because I was just like I'm already doing this music career and yes I might excel at you know math or English or whatever it was that I was doing and at one point in my life I wanted to be a lawyer and another point in my life I wanted to be a police officer and another point in my life I wanted to be a vet like you know you go through all sure. these various careers but music was always this sort of Staple. It was always there, and like I, it really didn't occur to me as anything different until I was maybe, you know, eight or nine, sleeping over at a friend's house, and like they weren't listening to music, and like I suppose that all that stuff starts to sort of build up in your head, and I suppose when I was, you know, talking to those guidance counselors in high school, and they were like, "You need a career to fall back on," and I'm like, "I don't plan to fall back." Mm -hmm. Like, isn't that really setting yourself up for failure? And they just, they, I understand exactly where they're coming from because right. now that I've been in the thick of things for a long time, um, I totally get what they're talking It's nice to have an actual career to be like, I can just go get this job or that job. Um, I just was never in that mindset. I never understood aiming for second best. Right, right. Just, it doesn't, didn't compute in my head when I was already doing this thing that I loved and was, you know, I thought I was pretty good at and all that stuff. Um, yeah, so I was always a professional and obviously it wasn't paid much to start with. I think my first few gigs on the weekends when I was 15, 16 were like 50 bucks. Right, but back then, you know. It was a lot of money for a kid. <laughs> I would have, I would have but I understood, that But I understood that and Australia kind of it's a smaller, I mean, it's a massive country. It's the size of the United States. Everybody knows that. But it's a, it's a smaller industry in terms of the musicians that are there. So there isn't as much of an original music scene. There, there is a scene, of course, but I just got all the gigs where I was, you know, basically playing covers, maybe a couple of originals in my sets, but playing covers three, four hours a show. And it, my, it was, you know, 
five gigs a week, six right. gigs a week, sometimes two gigs a night, three, four hour shows. So were you making any headway in your in, in Australia? Like in um, yes. terms of forging uh, yes. a career being a singer-songwriter? It was a very long grind for me. Um, as I said, you have to understand there really wasn't... There's not that... It's, it's not a, it's not this community like you go to Los Angeles or you go to Nashville and it's bustling and people know that they are breaking new ground there whereas in Australia it was you know the couple of people that did make headway were the you know big fish in a small pond situation Mm -hmm. and they just weren't getting out they weren't ever exported like the bands that were big in Australia never really you know the 80s and really 60s 70s and 80s were like the last boom for you know big Australian music and it's been a rare occasion of somebody getting out, but it makes music for its own country, and I, I never wanted to do that. The sort of music that was sort of popular, it was kind of indie and a bit obscure, and I, I always just had songs and stories, and I was, I don't know, not, not more mainstream, but I found myself writing songs with the equivalent, like Australian Idol contestants, and writing songs, like, you know, being more of the songwriter role, uh-huh. um, I wrote songs and had more headway writing um, dance and electronica music for um, artists in the UK and in Germany, and had a number of cuts um, with dance, you know, with dance music, you know, stuff that's charted, um, but Did you have management music, back home? No. If everybody assumed that I did. Everybody assumed I had deals, I suppose, and I was just always kind of me piecing stuff together. <laughs> um, but is it, was that something you were pursuing, though? Did you want a deal? Did you want management? Did you want... I wanted a lot of things, and it just wasn't there for me, and it didn't click with me until I was, you know, in my, you know, into my 20s and started to realize, you know, all those liner notes that I'd read, I've always been a big, big advocate for knowing why I liked a song or why I liked an artist why I liked a specific record and knowing who was involved in that so the liner notes being where was it made, who wrote the songs who produced it, who engineered it where was it mastered, who were the musicians that were on it, like I just wanted to know every why do I love this thing it's not just the some of the parts but I want, you know, knowing the parts is one thing, Um, so I started to sort of see that Everything was kind of being done in California. Most of it was being done in Hollywood. So I started to sort of realize my favorite records of all time were made, you know, in Sunset Sound Studios or Henson or these big, iconic um, record uh, recording facilities. And I started to think about all the producers that I really wanted to work with. And um, one of my producers that I wanted to work with actually reached out to me. Yeah, so I, I heard that story that you put it on your website. You put like a bucket list on your website, mm-hmm. and it was Howard Willing Correct. that somehow found it. Yes, and then reached out to you. Yes, and I, you know, received this email. And I was like, yeah, 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 because yeah, you know, you throw spaghetti at a wall, and usually it doesn't <laughs> stick. Usually, it's like, great, that's just spaghetti. Um, but yeah, so he reached out to me and was like, would you ever think about coming to Los Angeles to record? And I was like, yes, I have a reason now. It's not just me, you know, you landing always, in the big city and going, I'm going to be a star. <laughs> but that was always back of mind, like, I, I want to get to L.A. Yeah. Were you taking any steps to actually, I mean, this is such a, this is an amazing opportunity that you, you seize upon, but prior to that, were you taking any real concrete steps to get to L.A.? Were you, no, because okay. going to a city with no actual destination, people to work with, right. is foolish. I'm, sure. I'm not... 
I'm not delusional in that sense at all. I started to work out these are all these are all the people and the places, and the, this is an industry, and here it is in this city. But in no way did I was I planning to go to Los Angeles to just land there. It's like landing in any major city and going, I'm going to take over. Like it's. Right, right. It's the it's the synopsis of every movie ever to land in a city and just fall into these magical things. But I had, you know, once I got my actual a thread of hope or something to hold on to. Here's here's an actual thing to do. Would you want to come to Los Angeles? Would you ever? And it's like yes, of course. I have now. There's there's a real connection. It's not just right. one day. I'm you know every musician. It's one day someday. Sure. Um, so does he make you an offer? Like even even. Even the fact that he reached out, would you like to come to Los Angeles? And if, if you're about to buy a ticket, what are you what are you getting into at this point? Is he, oh, does he say, I want I want to meet you. I think we can collaborate. This was a, no. This was a long process because I, I mean I'd I'd been writing songs. Uh, I mean I probably had written most of the songs that would be like my first couple of American EPs. Like I was always writing and producing and had my own you know pretty crappy computer setup and whatnot. But I. I knew what I wanted in terms of sound and I knew I understood how to write songs and I'd already sort of been planning my you know that first layer of things which is the creative and the rest is the actuality of how to do this thing the mechanics of it and I so I was talking back and forth with Howard and he'd, he'd just start he just formed a record label with um, another partner in Definancier um, so that was how things were going to get were going to happen I bought my own ticket on my own dime but the recording and costs of um, the actual actual making of record was okay. going to be taken care of. So um, I'm sorry. So you went there with the notion you're going to go in the studio with him. And oh, record. we we went back and forth. I had a I had a contract in my hand to go over. Okay, because I, I there was one that was your production deal. Yes. So to speak. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so went over and had that deal and um, started recording. Um, I went over to Los Angeles twice before I moved. Um, to LA uh, just because it took you know my first trip was like oh wow holy shit this is real this is real this is actually a real thing but as a stranger coming into it who picks you up at the airport oh myself I rented a car and okay. drove myself on the wrong side of the road to Are you kidding my me? hotel no I was very jet lagged and it was you know I, I mean in retrospect looking back now I kind of had balls of steel a bit um but, but you're you there this first to time too. You're going. You have at least the meeting with Howard. Yes. Well, the first no, the first trip I, I went. We went right into the studio the first trip um, to start recording, and and then the second trip was the same thing, doing more recording, and um, it was yeah during my second trip where it was like I'm, if I'm going to do this, this is real, this is really happening, this is an actual career, this is what you've been working towards. You probably need to be there can't really do this part-time this is if you, you know kind of you know that was very heavy and clear in my head I was like you know don't blow this this is it it's, it's happened to you it's, right here's an opportunity here's an opportunity that nobody ever gets you know right don't mess it up so I um, worked out how to do the you know, visa situation, all that good fun stuff. And, <laughs> That's probably the hardest part of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, the stuff that people just think, like, and everything's just like the movies, and you just show up, and everything's yeah. just great, and you just live, and you just, just you know, there's no communication deficits. You know, everything just everything's great and easy. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so where did you stay when you were out there? Um, when I first stayed, I stayed in the. I was staying in a hotel in the valley with my rental car. Um, they had a studio. Um, a part, they had. Well, they had. I mean, we did main tracking and. Um, in Henson, but other overdubs and other recording in a studio that they had in Tarzana. So I was, yeah, I was in the valley. It just made okay. the most sense. Um, and your first couple of trips out there, you know, you need X amount of dollars to pay yeah. for a rental car, a hotel. Yeah. You already know your studio mm-hmm. costs and fees. Yeah. Are you paying musicians at this point too? No, I wasn't paying musicians. Um, just because obviously everything in terms of the studio costs were taken care of with the deal. Um, it wasn't until I actually moved there and started doing gigs, and that's when other costs come into you know come okay. into play. But yeah, I mean, it was really just even just the uh, transition between the Australian dollar and the American dollar. America had just gone through pretty terrible recession, recession. so my dollar was just it had just tanked. So I, I was paying you know any costs that I did have. It would, wasn't it wasn't pretty but again was again this, this is this back in what year was this was this 2010 um, this is uh was it was uh 2008 2009 and i moved in 2010 okay yeah, yeah that was tough times for uh i know good old us of a oh yeah <laughs> i know um and then with the production deal is that under the guys that they'll record you they'll have this product and then they can shop or shop it around or you were saying well, they, they were technically they have a, label. a label um so i would have just been looking for distribution um i mean i'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail but like after the recording was done um nothing after a period of time after i'd moved there um nothing had happened with the recordings that we'd done um they hadn't uh, done any PR, press, anything. So I basically took the record and walked out of that deal, maintained the record labels slowly sort of fell apart, but I kept my relationship with Howard and um, I basically took the record and took a single and um, had met a, a radio plugger in the UK. He was basically like, in you know, his sort of niche market was finding American, American artists to get into UK radio. And this mm-hmm. was BBC Radio 2, which is national radio. It's BBC Radio 1, which is a pop sort of network. Radio 2 is kind of the more adult contemporary and classic sort of um, station. So you might be on a show in between, say, Rolling Stones and Lady Antebellum or okay. you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, it's, you know, that was my that was my demographic. That was my sort of window. And so I took a chance with a radio plugger and ended up getting playlisted on BBC Radio 2, which is kind of unheard of for an unsigned artist. Mm-hmm. Um because being playlisted means that there's the A-list, B-list and C-list of rotation. A-list is high rotation, B is medium rotation. A-list may be, may be in that you get played five times a day, so and so and so. And C-list maybe once a day um, on a specific show. So I was playlisted on, on a C-list um, for uh, my single Lost Inside a Moment. So I self-released an EP with that song on it. And then they playlisted another song of mine. And I was like, okay, this is something that's happening over there. And again, something that unsigned artists don't have, because usually it's just major major right. la- label artists will plug to radio, and radio will be like, "Great, you know, the next Adele song or whatever." And so here's me, Katie, unknown Australian in Los Angeles, um, getting playlisted. So I, in the I, UK. <laughs> you know, I spoke, you know, number of times with the radio plugger and booked myself a couple of acoustic shows in London and went out there and did a couple of radio interviews with BBC as well and just tried to make something of it 
um, rather than just let it sort of slide by and again right. doing the random thing of showing up to a random city and being like Ugh. I mean there's less um, but again on your own dime on my own dime I, I found a pretty cheap hotel I didn't rent a car because um, London has a very good um, train system so right. I, knew, I knew I could take um, have you been there before prior? no but I kind of knew that the I mean Australian culture is way closer to British culture than American culture so okay. I kind of knew I wouldn't it wouldn't be like, oh, what am right. I aware? No, it wouldn't be a culture shock. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I yeah, landed there, did, did my interviews, did some shows, and I paid for um, PR and press for the UK. So, you know, not cheap, but worth worthwhile to, while, while you've got the rotation that you have on radio, right, right. make it make sense and, you know, have a few features in a few magazines, some newspapers, some press, some online stories and a couple of big outlets picked up my story being like Maverick and No Depression and some, some bigger UK they're most of them are sort of British and UK based but somewhere in the you know Americana sort of realm mm-hmm. um, so it was worth I feel like it was worth the money that I spent to do that um, can you give us a ballpark was that a couple thousand dollars to do um, for yeah, PR yeah I think I spent um, I think it was 1500 pounds um, for PR so whatever that translated to, I'm trying to think of what the what the. It's probably like two grand. Yeah, probably that at the time, but it was to me it was it was worth it. I'm like if you if you've got something, you know, back it up, mm-hmm. keep momentum going. Right. Otherwise, you just again, if I didn't get the playlisting, I would have been in the UK. And while you're in the U, you know, it's like the follow up and follow up and follow up. Otherwise, what's the point? Otherwise, you're just like everyone else, and it's just one random thing after another. Right. So I had this opportunity had radio play put press on top of it that now there's a story um so that went for as long as it went and they they played a few other songs of mine and then i um was having momentum so i did um, a kickstarter for what would be my first full-length american record so i launched that kickstarter in 2011 because uh, is that for lay it all down correct okay um now was there any i've, I've gone through this before with the Toad the Wet's Rocket, they did a Kickstarter. Were there any surprises to Kickstarter? I think a lot. I think there's a big misperception that it's just sit back and let the money come in, but you well, make kicks, a lot of commitments. To you make a lot of commitments. You've got to kind of be realistic about the rewards that you're offering people because otherwise it will take just as long to create these rewards for people um, and it becomes uh, stressful. Sure. And it was stressful. Anything involving money is stressful. I'm not a fool. You know, it's... It is always stressful. Right. It's never not stressful. Even if you have money, it's still stressful. <laughs> How do I then keep it? Then there's taxes and yeah, all those other things that come with it. But I, again, I had some good sort of headway with my um, Lost Inside a Moment EP. Followed up with that. I had a couple of little placements here and there, like with television and film from that. And... Um, uh, advertising campaign with my Vita watches picked up my, my song Gravity so okay. I got a little bit of money from that too so I started to see yeah, I started to see okay there's money, a little bit of money in television and film I didn't understand that completely yet um, I'm still I'm still understanding it because it's it, that's a totally different industry but I launched my Kickstarter I have you know a good amount of fans at this point I have a lot of fans in the UK some fans in America couple of my diehard fans from Australia no real career in Australia because it just didn't that's so funny didn't work out for me that way and a lot of people find that very strange and I'm like but if you're Australian you'll understand (laughs) 
it's just 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 totally different market um so I went through that process it took a lot longer to make that record than I anticipated I thought I'd be making more of an EP I think I launched that campaign as an EP and it became an album once I sort of worked out the um the economics of making the record I'm like well if I've got people in the studio if I've got the studio booked and these musicians booked for the day cost the same amount of money to track this amount of songs versus this amount of songs right so ended up tracking more songs and made you know made a full record and that just took longer because it meant writing more songs and all that fun stuff what was the goal for the kickstarter i think i only listed it at its five grand i'm trying to remember it was a really long time ago i think i listed it as five and i don't remember what i even got out of it that sounds terrible. <laughs> um, I got more out of it. I do know because it was successful. And I got more out of it, but I also probably spent just as much on top right. of it. Right. Um, now, just taking a short step back to, you know, your UK experience, mm-hmm. you're, I'm seeing you invest in yourself a lot. Mm-hmm. Is there any money coming in? I know you just mentioned you did get placements. Yes. You know, stuff like that. That was, that was really the bigger chunks of change that I've had come in. Um, the placements paid for you know a little bit in my life because you know at that point in time I'm still on a visa can't necessarily make money in America outside of the visas um, restriction from, yes, just correct. as an artist or a musical artist yes okay. correct um, and then do you you know life in LA did you get it by a car you're renting a apartment no um, well I was paying my way from I didn't have a car I was paying um, in a you know, share situation, paying my way, paying some bills here and there. I didn't have a l- tons of costs. Um, I was lucky in that respect, but I, I mean, I would have loved to have had a car. Um, LA is a tough city without a car. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is, my friend. Um, but I wasn't. I, I, I had already spent this money on my career, and even though, yes, having a car and other things, and I've always had a, I've always had a car. I've always paid my way. I've always done very, you know five, six, seven gigs a week to be landing in Los Angeles and not have this regular routine was that was kind of very um, deconstructing Um, but I had to keep sort of reminding myself and you know went through you know I suppose levels of uh, re-evaluation some depression because everything has changed so dramatically every little part in my life has changed the way I do things the way I make money the way I live day to day currency Language, um, having to switch out this word for that word because people look at me like I'm speaking a completely <laughs> different language. I'm like, I'm also speaking English. Um, but, you know, just working that out and adapting. Um, and I think what about most, friend, Were you making friends? Yeah, had tons. I, met, I mean, Los Angeles is just full of creative people. So, met tons of people, you know, made tons of friends, um, tons of musician friends, a lot of people on the same or slash similar journey. Um, maybe people that haven't made quite as much of a sacrifice as I had, but, you know, everybody sacrifices something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I respect that. But it was very very challenging. The first couple of years in Los Angeles were very challenging. Um, just on... Just me as a person to hold it together and, you know, as, as we do as, as artists and as public figures, you, you put on this very brave uh, facade and show people what an amazing life you have. Right. And... Uh, <laughs> And that's what people want to see. They don't want to see that you're struggling. They don't want to see that, you know, you miss, 
your family or that you're you know that things are hard and you know they, they just want to see the good stuff so you just show people the good stuff you know I just worked out what what did work for me and I mean I, I still I'm still always looking into more placements because that again that's bigger chunks of change mm-hmm. um, but after I launched the um, successful Kickstarter for lay it all down I had a couple other singles that um, the UK played on yeah, on BBC Radio 2 as well. Nothing else was playlisted because they also changed their format so that they weren't they weren't playlisting um, stuff in the same manner. They were right. only doing more of what they were doing with me, which is spot plays, like one play here and one play there, this and that. Um, so they were still uh, invested in, in me, um, but it just meant less rotation. Because when you are actually playlisted, as I said, you've got this A, B and C format. Right, right. But the surrounding countries in around the UK, so yes, they're playlisted in England, but Scottish BBC will look in on that chart. Irish BBC will look in on that chart. Surrounding countries look at that as a tastemaker. So things can really grow right, and grow right. quickly. Um, so, you know, obviously outside of England, I have plays, little plays here and there in other countries and other European territories were looking at what I was doing, but not being on that... Um, actual playlist chart uh, for my uh, subsequent singles it just wasn't the same sort of game um, I was very frustrated at that but I, I, also, I understood after, you know, after the fact I was just very lucky to have been playlisted in right, the first right. place um, and being frustrated also didn't help it doesn't change your scenario um, so what's where are you now in relation to eventually you moved to Nashville Yes, I'm still in Los Angeles at this point. I actually made, I'd made some music videos for Lay It All Down. I made one for I Can't Wait and a song called We Started a Fire. Um, put those out and I actually uh, paid for a video promotion company to, because video promotion companies will also get your videos played in different territories. So obviously I had friends texting me and calling me going I just saw your video in Costco <laughs> just hey. stuff like that so little so little funny. bits of back end royalties <laughs> nothing that bounds the equation of what the costs were for the videos but I really believe that people listen with their eyes they read with their eyes they don't yeah. you get as much of like a headline you get a sentence in people want to see the photo they want to see the video to give them the uh motivation or encouragement to finish reading or investing in whatever it is but I know I understand that videos are an immensely powerful promotional tool I've I've always understood that a great photo a great video can do everything for you and knowing that you again you're you're paying for all this out of pocket are you are you getting a return on investment do you think no I got some return from the video promotion as I said I got some back-end royalties here and there from um outlets that have picked up the videos and that comes back through ASCAP um, which is the Performing Rights right, Association right. and you know I'd had re- I'd had some money come back through from the UK radio play because they actually pay quite well um, not anything that covers the, the balance of what I'd done for promotion and press and right. things like that but something like you know, about £100 per play it's quite significant really? yeah wow so hence I understood I would have thought it would have been pennies no, I understand. No, no, no. It's a, it's a real network. Um, so I, I mean, that's part of the reason why I felt okay with spending money on promotion because I'm like, well, I know I'm going to get some return. Doesn't right. matter. I don't know how much, but I will get some return, knowing that they do pay. So after I didn't get 
quite as much momentum with Lay It All Down and I had Chris Christopherson on a song like the songs were great I felt really strong about what I was doing <laughs> now did you have to throw him a 20 I mean what or did he come well part that of the came with that came with Howard um, was working with um, producer Don was right um, Howard's it, incredibly incredibly creative human being and he's 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 eclectic uh track record was what sort of attracted me to him in terms of working just because when i first was reading those liner notes it was cheryl crow and macy gray and okay Young and smashing pumpkins which we'll get to in a sec but it was that okay he's i always look for common threads mm-hmm. that name you know keep popping up you know it's like sometimes when you're reading a book and a, a word will pop out and it means more to you for some reason you're like whoa mm-hmm. esoteric something yeah, yeah um he was one of those people for me that i kept seeing his name pop up on various line notes and i was like okay that's really good so again he was working with with don was with um for a chris christopherson record and it was thrown his way. I'd written a song called Penelope, which I actually wrote from male perspective. I actually always wanted someone like a Glenn Campbell or Christopherson, someone, some kind of, you know, older gentleman with a track history and a, and a, a life lived right, um, right. to sing this song because it was kind of a working man's song in a way. But that door never opened for me. Um, although I did get to play some shows with Glenn Campbell and actually recorded um, on his Ghost on the Campus record in 2011. Again, through Howard and his associations with other people, I was brought into that as a a good fit, as a vocalist. So I've had some wonderful opportunities. But I wrote this song, couldn't get this song across to anybody, so I'm like, I still love this song, I'm going to cut it. I don't care, doesn't matter. I love this song, don't care. So I cut the song, and then it became Howard was in the studio, and they, the idea was thrown his way. Would Chris want to sing on this song? So he listens to the song, and I wasn't there um, for the actual recording session, but it went some, paraphrasing, it went something like this. Um, he listens to the song. He really enjoys the song. He's like, who wrote this? Because, Chris, you know, Christopherson's one of my songwriting icons. He's everybody's songwriting icon because he's written all the songs just about. Him and Dylan have written just about all of them. Um, he wrote the song she did. She did? You know, he actually liked the song. Um, so he sang his part on the song and it was one of those right place, right time. In any other day of the week, wouldn't have happened. It right. just happened to be the right time. I know how lucky I was in that respect. So Do you kick your, why, why couldn't you be there? Were you somewhere else at the time? It was, it was during his recording himself, his session. His, he was making a record, and it would have been intrusive for me to be there. It was just a matter of if there was sure. time at the end of the day to do the session. It wasn't just me. You know, I wasn't just going to show up and be like, it's all about me. It's not about me. It's about it's everything. If Christopherson is in the sentence, it's about Chris Christopherson. Um, so yes, and of course he's a songwriting icon, also a screen icon. The amount of movies he's been is, is ridiculous too. So that happened, and I really thought more would happen with uh, my Lay It All Down record because I'd invested more in it. I felt like there were better songs, and I had a couple of these names associated, like Christopherson. Who gets to drop that name? Come on. Yeah, yeah. So I got some, um, I got some press out of out of the record. I promoted in the UK again. Again, didn't get the playlisting, but got a few spot plays here and there. That's as far, really as far as that record went. So I went into, again, well, I made the videos, so then I went into promoting it via the video route. So then got those 
Costco Blaze. And now, would you would you be would you write your own press release just for the states and send it out to you know no. whatever outlet you knew of? Like, so the states had no. No, it had no real um, bearings. I did a I did a radio campaign for the states through AAA Radio. I think they wrote their own. Um, they included the bio that I already had written, but I think they wrote their own press release. But I made the individual packets. They just told me, do this, 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 and this, and here's your list of people, send right. them out. Um, so that's what I did for, for AAA Radio, and I feel like that was money wasted. Right. Because nobody tells you... I mean, AAA Radio's great. There's no back-end from AAA Radio, because a lot of the time it's this local station and this city and this local station and so forth and so forth. Um, but I'm glad I did it. You know, you live, you learn, all that stuff. And who knows? You know, you, you don't know. You never know what's going to happen when you invest in yourself. Right. Um, but I tried that. Didn't really get any return on that. I mean, I had people play this, you know, play the songs, play the key songs that, you know, these are the these are the songs to focus on. Here's your focus tracks for the album, blah, blah, blah. So that was frustrating. Um, and really, unless you're going out and spending money, even more money, which I didn't have, right. to go visit these radio stations and do, you know, in radio performances and meet and greets and stuff, I mean... That alone is you know, to travel to, you know, even if you're picking a dozen markets, could be in upwards to 40, 50 grand just to do that alone. And do I have that money? No. Right. All this time, too, are you still trying? I mean, to me, it sounds, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you need that support. You need that label yep. to put the money behind it, mm-hmm. to get the, put it into the machine. And, yeah, and absolutely. Get, are you pursuing that? At every turn, are you still? Yeah, I was. You know, I mean, I was reaching. And, I was reaching out to managers. I was reaching out to labels and crickets. You know. Really? Yeah. Gosh. It's not the business changed dramatically in the mid two thousands. Dramatically, as in once once digital took over as the main. Right. Was well, a shift you know, of once, power. Once everything moved to iTunes, really. <laughs> And this obviously iTunes has kind of now moved on to Spotify. But once everything moved to iTunes, um, the risk factor of trying to get a hit is just anybody that's anybody. If you went, if you're actually landing on terrestrial radio, you've had at least one to two million dollars put into you from somebody. And if you don't have the money yourself, you need a label or somebody else to do it for you. So, I mean, I was I, I always knew I was on an uphill battle. Like I understood it from the get go. But I was just trying to do the grassroots thing of, well, if I've got enough fans um, that are invested in what I do, then I can play shows here and here and here and here and here. And it just, you know, it's when you land in another country and start from scratch, you know, those first, you know, 100 or a couple hundred fans that you have are usually friends and family and extended friends and family. Like, that's really it. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Everybody knows that. But to start, move countries, not just move cities, move countries... And start with no fans in an, in an area, you know, that just took. It just takes so much longer than you anticipate, and I didn't really have the funds to have a ten-year overnight success the way that most bands do. Mm-hmm. But I built up a career in Los Angeles. Um, Were you playing out a lot live in Los um, Angeles? Not tons, but maybe like you know a few gigs a month. Bigger shows, you know, saved and reserved for you know CD release situations, yep. so that there's excitement and everyone comes out because there's always somebody playing somewhere. So you know you got to kind of save your you know, save your ammunition for the right moments. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it didn't take me long. I mean, I started to travel to Nashville in about. I think my first trip in there was 2011. I started to do sort of word of songwriting community and whatnot, so I was like, okay. 
friend of a friend of a friend. I ended up staying at like a friend's parents' basement. I stayed in, I stayed there and just rented a car out there. What was your first impression of it? Well, my first trip to Nashville, and I, it, I didn't cotton on right away because clearly I'm, I'm really smart in hindsight. <laughs> but my first trip out to Nashville, I'd booked a number of songwriting sessions and maybe, I think I played five shows and wrote like eight or nine songs out there. And I ended my first trip in Nashville hosting my own writer's night and just invited all the people that I've written with that week to come play the show and and it didn't click with me until I was like oh because people were like oh how often do you come to Nashville and like this is my first trip and I'm hosting my own show <laughs> so I guess I didn't click how well people communicate in Nashville and there's a lot of camaraderie there that doesn't exist as much in other cities um, but there's definitely more of a artists being involved in each other's careers like there's right, that right. collaborative nature even if you're competing you're still kind of competing together so I, I got that right away and I started to go out to Nashville every sort of three to four months for you know up to two weeks at a time and writing songs and just getting to know the community and sort of started to realize that was kind of more I wasn't a country music artist. I now understand, obviously, very clearly that I'm, a, I'm an Americana artist. Um, it's more storytelling, sort of a few genres built into one. Americana is kind of the umbrella genre of the misfit genres that don't belong anywhere else kind of go under that. Right. So it's, it might be folk, bluegrass, blues, soul, like any element of something else goes there. I, I sort of... I started to understand the songwriting community, the storytelling nature of the way that people would write songs, the work ethic that people put towards writing songs. You know, it's 11 to, you know, whatever it is, 11 to, 11 to 2, then like maybe a 3 to 6. Like a lot of the smaller publishers would, you know, pay writers out there. So I started to think, well, maybe I can get a publishing deal, which I should have already had in Australia, but nobody was pursuing it for me and I wasn't pursuing it heavy enough when I was, you know... 1920 my head was not in that game I didn't understand I should have been when I had the, the traction that I had I should have gone for that right. again I'm so smart in hindsight well I mean <laughs> I think anybody that at that age that's when you need guidance to navigate the business and get you know, what's best for you I didn't really have that um, uh, so you know I was like well maybe I can do that and you know it took me a number of trips out to Nashville to realise that they're really writing I mean until country music sort of changed to country pop which it, it sort of is at the moment mm -hmm. um, they were writing very country country songs and kind of have to have lived that that life, that world to say those things and mean those things Right. but I did understand the more storytelling aspect of things and obviously dug into you know, early Johnny Cash and you know, Carter Family and just I started to learn w where the origins of country and blue guys really come from which is this sort of white collar daily struggle situation I, I really related to that and I really related to that to that specific genre so again yes I'm paying my way to go out to um, Nashville to write but I felt like I was getting my sort of history mm -hmm. I was kind of a very, a very quick You're learning for college in essence. yeah it was <laughs> yeah, the University of Country Music College whatever. Don't, I don't regret any of that stuff because obviously I live there now and love it so was it was it hard to move there yes 
Uh, and no, I did find pretty quickly that I made better. I'd made some better relationships and better quality friendships. People seemed a little bit more honest and genuine, and it's a very church-going sort of community. So people are kind of a bit more giving in that respect. Right, They're right. just brought up in a different, a different way to actually care about their neighbours and you know who, who people are across the street from you and right, right. you invite people over to grill out just it's community sure, and sure. in Los Angeles I, well LA has I, such a I, terrible reputation of being <laughs> completely superficial I mean I had one you know a good friend of mine lived around the corner and I never saw her like we'd only see each other at shows and like that's that's kind of the thing you never right. made the effort and it's I don't know how else to put it but LA is more and I don't mean it in the, the negative sense, but it's more self-centered as and people are just focused really on themselves and their career. And that's not a bad thing. Everyone's there to do that grind and right. it's ultra competitive. And if you don't if you don't focus on yourself or put yourself forward, you're not going anywhere. Except I've always still been in that let's all do this together. I've always, you know, the amount of dots I connected to people, opportunities I gave to people, just threw stuff out there because that's who I am. Mm-hmm. And didn't click until I really moved to Nashville that stuff I'd done in Los Angeles was never really reciprocated and was like huh I know you know that's just the city itself and that's okay but in Nashville I feel like it is more so people care a little bit more you know if I go out to this show this other person might come to my show and it's just a bit more like let's just hang out yeah you know um, now your your ties I want to hear the story but you this still goes back to Howard Mm-hmm. Um, where you eventually land with the pumpkins, mm-hmm. would that have? Do you think these opportunities and where you are today would still be? I'm getting the impression that Nashville helped you grow as an artist. Yes. If you had never moved there, do you still think you would? This opportunity would still be taking place. Well, I first opened for for Billy Corgan when I was in Los Angeles. Okay. Okay. Um, and he knew of me via Howard. He knew of he knew I was an artist that he worked with and. It was that, well, would she want to open up an acoustic show I'm doing in Chicago? It was like, yes, of course. I don't know how or what or whatever, but brought a couple of my musicians and flew out to Chicago and did the show and was like, wow, you know, you just think, oh, that's, you know, that's super cool. It's it's Billy Corgan, like, you know, one of the greatest songwriters on the planet, super, you know, super famous guy, you know, total rock star, and wow, just thought that would be it. And then the next year, he was putting together his acoustic electro tour, which was called In Plain Song. Mm-hmm. He threw it out via Howard. Um, would she want to open <laughs> these shows and whatever? And I was like, yes. Um, I don't know. Again, I don't know how. I don't know. Understand how I'm going to logistically do this. But then that evolved why, quickly. Why, why so? How much does it cost to tour? opening for a band in terms of I'm going from city to city how am I doing this I ended up riding on the crew bus with the crew right because if I'm only making you know a couple hundred bucks per show for an opening slot I'd probably be spending more of that right if I wasn't um taking care of via travel so um you know and again you, you know you do weigh these things up and I've had various situations as I've told you before where you just go I need to spend I have got to spend the money right. If I don't spend the money, I'm being stupid. But I managed to find a way to travel on the crew bus for that thing. But it evolved into this double duty role of, you know, do you also want to play bass on a few songs during this tour? And it was like, yes. 
I'm a guitarist, but now not to be facetious, but at this point, are you are you looking like, well, if I'm going to do double duty, what's going to cost you? More? No, in no <laughs> way was I ever in that mind frame okay. ever. This was an opportunity, and I do understand that you say yes to things, and it'll you pay know, dividends down the road. Well, I mean, I, this I, don't, is mean an investment. Be, I don't mean to be. I'm already, I was already being paid as an opening act, not much. As I said, it's probably a couple hundred bucks per show. I saw that as, well, if, if I'm getting that money, but I'm also taken care of in terms of my travel, then the rest of this is this amazing story. And I'm building this story that is way more valuable than being paid actual money. Right. This is, value. This is, this is a career investment to do this secondary role. So, yes, I was doing double duty, but it was paying way more than cash would. Sure. I got that. I cottoned on. So I did my show and then ran out to the merch area, waved, shook hands, kissed babies, <laughs> signed some stuff. I had vinyl and my, I had my vinyl for Lay It All Down and CDs for Lay It All Down. I think I was selling my Lost Inside the Moment EP at the same time. Um, now, was vinyl a large investment? Yes. Vinyl costs a lot of money. I still have a lot of vinyl left of Lay It All Down. <laughs> I'm still selling it to this day. It's not getting cheaper. You think it's getting cheaper, and every time you look into costs, and you're like, it's still the same. It's still super expensive. But people want it, and they will invest in buying it. Yeah. If you put it in front of people, people will buy it. So I'm not in a hurry to make vinyl again for my new record, but we'll get there. Okay, so I was selling my vinyl. We take photos, met fans that were kind of going, ah, oh. you know. They saw the connection. It's not just this opening act. Oh, she's also playing on stage. So then I run back on stage and play my few songs or whatever with the band and this story began mm-hmm. and obviously press picked it up very quickly because they're like who is this girl because Smashing Pumpkins has always had like a female bass player and there's always been some mysterious somebody doing something um, so press sort of got that right away they were like oh new bass player and you know had a few you know press stories that randomly sort of approached me to, you know like I'm not I'm like I'm not in the Smashing Pumpkins I'm just playing I'm just a touring member but it, this is great da 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 so I started that story and then the next year 2016 and I'm still doing my career I'm still doing shows I'm still doing things and that but next year was the second leg of the In Plain Song Tour which was the bigger leg which was Jimmy Chamberlain came back to play drums and James Eha came back to play guitar for a few of the key shows being Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. Mm-hmm. And fans lost their minds because <laughs> they saw it. They were like, he's there and he's there and he's there. And then there's me on bass going, <laughs> But, you know. Could you see numbers like on your social media start to rise? Yes. I mean, there's that, yes. you know. Yeah, I mean, my, I've always been very, very active with socials. I'd already was verified on Twitter and had verified my Facebook. I'd already... I, I understand marketing. Mm-hmm. Not as a, I'm not professionally trained, but I understand it pretty well. So I've always been very uh, invested and involved in maintaining numbers, giving people content, and giving people a window into a lifestyle that they wouldn't normally have. Right. So now, now I have this other audience looking in on what I do. It's not just oh, you're looking in on pumpkins. They're looking in, looking in from seeing me with pumpkins and finding this other career and going oh. So the In Plain Song Tour Part 2 was with original members, people lost their minds, um, we played bigger venues, um, like we came back to Nashville to play at Ryman, and in New York it was the Beacon Theatre, and just these 
incredible iconic venues so none of that was lost on me I'm like I may never get to ever step into these venues I may never get to play on the Ryman stage again ever but oh my god I'm doing this right now and I was singing lead on a couple of songs because Billy wanted me to mm-hmm. um, so I was singing um, Stand Inside Your Love a big song for them and a song that he co-wrote for um, for Hull called Malibu yep. and people were like people actually were like I prefer your version. I can hear you sing. So a lot of, you know, a lot more stories, press, you know, unprofessional press, fans and whatnot. Like, so that became a thing of like, oh, she's, who's this girl? So I, again, none of that was lost on me. So I, while on the road during that tour, I launched a pledge campaign. Because I was a couple of weeks into the tour and was like, if I don't do something to engage these fans, I am losing. Right. And I, again, I understand engagement. I understand marketing. But I you also always, saw my growing audience. Sorry to interrupt, but you were always good with recording in your hotel room a cover song. And you know, I know you want to get out original material and what's you know in your heart. But yeah. are, you, are you? I'd 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 maintained my YouTube of just like doing weekly covers, just because I'm not arrogant in the sense of just listen to my songs. You know, people want to hear you interpret other songs right. they want to you can't throw the same song at people constantly because it's hounding them you can't make people listen to a song you can inspire them by oh I like that song well, what else has she got and they'll go find out stuff on their own and then you occasionally nudge them every so often I also have this record or did you know I also have physical merch on this website like I just try and offer an olive branch of find this, find this crumb, this clue here but I always did covers and I still do because it's just an important it's just something new, it's something pe- people just want to hear a song that they know, they want to hear your voice right? but they just want to hear something that they know, so again me doing, singing those couple songs lead was a big role because people started to go, oh my god, and find other stuff that I'd done online so Part of my pledge campaign, one of the biggest um, meal tickets for the rewards for me was doing cover videos for YouTube, a specific song of your choice. Okay, smart. Because that seemed to be something I know how to do. I can learn songs <laughs> super quick. It's, it's not a hard one because, again, we discussed this earlier, picking rewards that are doable yes, you've got to be clever or you're, you're just going to spend too much time on the wrong things. And you're gonna get stressed. You're gonna stress yourself out on the wrong things. So I pieced together my pledge music campaign, shooting bits of video footage after shows at like one in the morning at the hotel, and just you know didn't. This is me. Just me doing it myself. Tripod, this, that, whatever. Uh, sound check, this, that, whatever. Launched it, and you know it was successful, and I started to get a you know good amount of engagement. I didn't actually release my first physical EP um, until 2018. So I launched it in 2016 on the tour, but didn't launch it in the actual, didn't finish it until 2018 because I knew I had to engage people, but I knew I didn't have all the songs and I wasn't just going to put out something. I'm not in the business of just putting out something for the sake of something. I think people, you got to be genuine and you've got to be you got to give people something worthy of your... Um, you got to give them something worthy of their attention, worthy of their money, worthy of their trust. So, I'd, you know, I had a couple of songs that I knew would, would be the songs that would make it 
had to, had to spend the next year writing those songs, and then it, then it became pre-production and so forth and so forth. But I was successful with the campaign, and I successfully engaged those fans to take part in this journey with me. And they, I sort of tried. I've tried to make my career ever since doing that 2016 tour is kind of showing people an insight into my world, into being a touring artist, into even though some people think I'm this giant rock star, or whatever it is, I don't know what people think I am. I don't know. It's not my business to know what they think of me, I suppose. But to kind of be like the people's musician, right, right. like show them what I do. I'm still down to earth. I still do these things. Here's this cover video. I still do backstage things. I still get super emotional. I'm super grateful on stage. I don't. Well, I'm to, in a very I mean, gifted. To, to I'm your... in a gifted position. I'm not. It's, right. it's pretty amazing. To your credit, that's why I'm here. Your Instagram account, I mean, I love it. It's exactly what I want every artist to do. And it's just like you said, you give us that behind the scenes, just enough to, you know, you know, you don't give too much away. There's still a bit of mystery, but it's like, it's, it's amazing. Oh, cool. I appreciate that. Hats off. Hats off to you. That's a... I, I think I discovered you. I don't. Even, I, I discovered you on Instagram, and that's cool. and it, as it went along, I was like, "Wait, a minute, she's playing with <laughs> she's playing on the Spanish puppet." Yeah. It's just so funny how these things popped up. Well, it's pretty. Um, yeah, it's pretty crazy because that's. It's just been this thing of it started as one show that became a small tour that became the next tour that became an arena tour, and now we're doing um, amphitheaters. The sheds. The sheds. Yes, um, but I. I did that pledge campaign, put out the first EP. I actually had to. I'm not going to go right into the right into it, but I had to get pretty firm with pledge to pay me. Oh, well. they went under. They're bankrupt now. Oh no, I didn't yeah. know that. Um, I. They were trying to delay me when I knew my payment was due. I'm pretty on top of things, um, as I have to be because. I already had to go into finding um, a private investor to get things going until they paid me out. Because even though I was successful, they wouldn't pay me. They paid me some, but wouldn't pay me the rest until I'd finished the campaign and released all my rewards. And I'm like, that is a catch-22 that I didn't read in any fine print. And I read the fine print, and you guys didn't tell me. So they wouldn't pay out until you'd finished. So I then had to find other funding to pay. So then did that. Rewards out, done, done, done. Then they were like, oh, we need an extra week or whatever. And I was like, you know, and you get that feeling. Like my my gut said, something isn't right. Mm -hmm. Started Googling madly and saw a bunch of people that were saying, it's funny they haven't paid me in a couple of months. And I, I just got that gut feeling that was like, go hard, go after them now. You're in a position of power. You're doing things that involve press. You're doing things that involve very big rock stars they're gonna listen to you so I went I like I always call it like angry emails like whenever I'm doing something assertive when I'm writing to a manager or a label or trying to get their intention I've never I've always been this person that just if I'm going after something I'd go for it um, and I've gotten myself into situations where I'm like how did I how are you answering me but this is me this is what I do people think I've got this huge team around me and it's me so I did my angry email to them that was like Basically, you are going to pay me by the end of the week. Right. I know a lot of people, you don't want me to be reaching out to the press people that I know talking about you right now when you're in this position. You're going to pay me by the end of the week. And they did. Wow. Um, it was a pretty interesting email. Um, but got the job done. 
That's, um, that's a good story. That wasn't on Instagram. No, nobody <laughs> knows that. Some of the Pledge fans know, and some of the Pledge... Pledge actually kind of tried to tell me off for when I told the fans, this is taking longer because Pledge aren't paying me um, until I finish the awards, and this is Catch-22. They told me off and said, you can't, tell, you can't say that to your fans and blah, blah, blah. And you knew... They were basically saying that I knew what I was getting into, and I didn't. There was nothing in the fine print. I'm not... I read, I, with the exception of some of the really long iTunes things that you have to agree to, yeah. I, I read contracts. I read contracts. I know how to rewrite them. I know. I understand that. I run, I run my own life and career, and I've managed to get through a lot. It's like I can do basic coding for websites because I have to. <laughs> um, so, pledge campaign through successful, done first EP out, starting the arena tour. So, with the blessing and permission of Billy Corgan was selling my EP early release wasn't officially out at all in those arenas for the shiny no so bright tour in um, 2018 <laughs> again it's like everything like smashing pumpkins everything huge and metric woven so it's metric and then there's one little Katie Cole CD hiding in the corner was, just, was that a conversation that made you nervous to even breach no I didn't bring it up Billy offered, offered it oh great wow so it was Even one better. of those, oh my God. But again, you know, I didn't sell tons because, again, people are not playing my stuff. People don't, yeah. they know who I am, but don't know to look for it. And again, if you're swamped with these incredible new, and everybody loves merch. Everybody knows, you know, bands make their money on merch. If you're seeing this incredible merch and this new Pumpkins merch that's incredible and they always have great merch and this tiny Katie Cole little <laughs> CD like I get it I'm not that's fine but I still made some fans and told people you can buy it and it was just exciting to be able to say that you can you can buy it at Madison Square you know you can buy you know oh my god <laughs> so did the arena tour and was just blown away because again I've had the amount of bucket list checks I've had with this band is just mind-blowing. I uh, can't... Yeah, you uh, need a new bucket, I think. I, I've been told to buy a bigger bucket, yeah, <laughs> from several people. Um, but I've, they just keep coming, though, because, like, that tour was, like, yeah, Madison Square Garden and Wembley and the Forum and sold out here and sold out there. And I was just like, uh, um, And I didn't think I'd be doing the um, European tour that was happening... Um, this year yep. um, because they also did some shows um, without me just just uh, it was just uh, Billy um, Jeff James uh, Jimmy and Jack the bass player and they did some shows without me and I was just like you guys do I'm, I'm ha- anytime you ask me to do something I'll say yes but if you don't need me totally cool it'll <laughs> be <Right>. fine <laughs> no but it was cool it was just like you guys do whatever you gotta do at the kind of at the last minute it was like do you want to do these European shows? And I was like, yes. Um, so, you know, learn some of the newer material. And again, I'd switched. Oh, I forgot to mention that, but you know, I switched from playing bass for those in Plain Song tours to playing keys for Jeez. the arena tour. So I'm now playing keys again. Um, How much time do you have to learn? Well, I mean, I'd already learned most of the material. We were still playing some of the material that was from the arena tour. But in terms of switching the keys? Oh, what do you mean? How Did long? you... When you 
I'm just I'm trying to put it together. When you got the last minute for Europe, was Europe when you started to play the keys? No, or? I played for the arena tour okay, just before really that. Okay, um, so that's really when I sort of dug in to just play, just play, play a yeah. lot more and just get back into the swing of being a, a piano player. And it's not my, you know, it was my first instrument technically outside of vocals to play, but I've played guitar for so long that I'm just more of a rhythmic human being. Mm-hmm. And piano is more of a melodic, um, you know, melodic approach to it, melodic structure. Um, yeah, got into the European shows and did these incredible, like we did 17 countries in Europe um, that involved a lot of festivals and some of the shows were like 75,000 people, 100,000 people at Download Festival. And it's just like, that's your, that's when you look out and you're like, that's what that many people looks like. Okay. Um, yeah, your, uh, your Instagram was really great this summer. I was actually over in Europe um, while you guys were over there and they never... You never crossed, but uh, it was. I think the Australian came out and knew that you never sat in a hotel. You were always out seeing the sights. A lot of people ask me stuff like, um, you know, you must. You looks like you had lots of downtime and you had this, this, and this, and that. And um, I'm like, no, I didn't. I had 20 minutes. <laughs> I didn't. I had a few hours, and if I didn't get up that morning at, you know, seven or eight and go see this thing, I wouldn't have. Uh, it wouldn't have happened for me. But I'm in all these different cities and I'm all these, in all these different countries I've never been to. If I didn't take the initiative to go out and see it, I'd just be like most other bands that see the hotel, the airport, and the tour bus or whatever. Yeah. I, I'm not that person. I want, I want to know, I want to have an actual memory from the city. I walked around this city, I got a coffee here, I went and saw this museum, I went and saw this building or this iconic structure. I just wanted to see something new and Europe is full of these incredible old buildings and statues and monuments and churches and and it's just like it's wow totally wow so i made the effort and i was very tired for the entire tour but (laughs) i i don't i don't regret it it was it was worth it so you you wrap up and correct me if i'm wrong you guys wrap up um actually at the end of this month 31st in mountain view california Mm -hmm. uh what's next well i go back to doing some more shows um in Nashville, I'll probably do some more concerts in. I would say I'd probably do some more stuff in Chicago. Just I got a few you. things. Well, I usually bring another player or two out with me mm-hmm. to do shows. I like um, this one player in particular. I, I play with a lot called Mark Lonsway, who's just an exceptional uh, musician and wonderful singer. And I just like it just helps to bring my music has a lot of layers in it I just want to have at least one or two other layers within what I do as a performance to show people what the songs really are um, but yeah I like to do that I like to do house concerts I don't know if you know much about house yeah, concerts yeah. but yep. yeah it's kind of that people that do them properly there's a couple in Nashville that do them well there's one in Louisville that I do often as well but it's usually a gathering of you know 50 people or so you know someone's large home sometimes it's outside sometimes it's inside but people pay usually it's a you know 10 to 20 dollars per head potluck everyone it's just a good hangout like so it's your own private sort of concert and i've made some of the best fans that way because they see you they get to know you chat to them it's it's real right um so i love that i I love doing those i want to do want to do some more of those i would have loved to have found spots to do house concerts along the way on this tour but just the, the the off days as as I explained to you earlier on, the off days a lot of the time is me traveling on a bus for 12 hours and getting somewhere in the afternoon and just wanting to pass out. So it's, it's been a little bit challenging to do 
um, shows on this, on, even on down days, it's been hard to do. Right. Um, but the engagement again, I've, I've fans see it. I'm once again involved in the situation. Um, all the guys in the band have been super inclusive and gracious towards me, and I, I feel like I, I, I they, they've, they've told me that I bring something to the table that helps to just sort of, sort of elevate that band, the band to just this other sort of level and. I know it's got to do with um, what I do vocally a lot. Um, again, that's my primary instrument, and that makes sense. <laughs> um, and I, what I like to add as well is that I mean, I, I love Billy's voice, and a lot. Of, some people are like they love it or they hate it or whatever it is, but he's got a way of singing and using this immense range that he's got that nobody else can do what he does. And when I sing with him and support him when he's doing what he's doing, that's when people go, oh. Right okay and he sings to me in my opinion he sings way better now than what he ever has he knows how to use his voice control it he can sing those songs every night at full voice and you're just like whoa wow that's great it's kind of nuts <laughs> um but i know how to sing with him and I've, I've always known how to sing with people rather than on top of people i don't step on vocals i sing with them and that's a skill i've learned from playing and bands and playing music right. my whole life sure. you know knowing how to actually do your job and make something better and don't just show people what you can do like sure. isn't that, that's it's just really stupid um, it's a team sport the pumpkins yes and I've, I've definitely been very yeah I've been invited into sort of pumpkin land and the Smashing Pumpkins fans are these incredibly embracing fans and they know that I don't do alternative music but I still cover alternative music on my YouTube channel and I still, um, I mean, they like the songs that I write. Yeah, They've yeah. invested in me as a person and and they like what I do. They, and they, they've, they've bought into it and they're, they're kind of some of the best fans I've ever met because they're just super supportive. They just want to, they're as excited about the pumpkins as they are about what I do and they, they like that I share my experience as well. Mm -hmm. I try and give them that unique window into touring life and what it really entails and not every I don't show them everything but I show yeah. like what you've seen just just that have you, have you ever had a conversation with anyone with the pumpkins of like be careful or don't don't take a picture of me here or you know any anything any boundaries um not really I mean but you're smart the guys, enough, you're smart enough to know I yeah I try and just use my own in initiative I don't Unless somebody is kind of wanting a photo in the band or if I'm at a rehearsal and there's something special, I'll generally I'll send it to people and be like, I took this cool photo. And they'll yeah. be like, oh, you should post that. I would never just, I would never take a, you know, a candid photo of somebody and just post it. It's just not, sure. it's not cool. It's not professional. It's not cool. And part of my job, aside from being a musician, is get al getting along with people and right. understanding what their needs are. And I mean... I don't know if you saw, but Billy walked past with his son before and I waved at him and didn't call, he's gone. But I'm just saying, it's about not respecting people in their space. Yeah, he's, for sure. he's not working right now, he's with his son, yeah. leave him alone. And uh, he gets enough fans that try and take photos of him. Or you'll see photos of people that tag him in a photo and it's just them just like taking a secret. It's, it's really disrespectful <laughs> and it happens to him all the time and I never, ever want to be that person. Yeah. I, I, you know, I love all the guys in the band too much. I would never want to step on their toes and disrespect them in that way. It's, 
their family and they've earned the right to have their own level of privacy. Sure. Like, For sure. Well, you've given me a ton of your time. I appreciate it. I just have five more questions. These are the last five questions yes, that everybody okay. gets. Then my, okay. my final five. Okay, um, got to be quick because i got to check out this hotel okay. in 15. First question, your house on fire. Everyone's out safe. All living creatures are out safe. What do you run back in to get that has the most sentimental value to your career? I don't know. I'm always of the mindset of as long as the cats are safe, as long as my documents are safe, like, you know, passport, birth certificate. I don't really have a lot of sentimental things anymore. Kind of worked out when I left Australia that a lot of things I thought were important weren't important. Okay. It's kind of the people. Um, so you want to get the Smashing Pumpkin snowboard? I don't know. It's still in a box. I know exactly <laughs> where it is, though. <laughs> that, by the way, is your best post. Yeah. The swag. The swag from the arenas is great. I know. Killer, right? Um, and all those jerseys. <laughs> Question two is, I, if I was at liberty to give you a large check for, say, a million dollars to then to give to one charity, which charity would you donate it? And I know you've donated your time to, like... Uh, yeah, I, I, donate, I donate my time to Musicians on Call, and I recently did something for The Beat of Life that involved um, writing songs with um, inmates. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I'm pretty partial to animal charities, too. Okay. I've donated to um, cancer charities, too. I oh, have one charity in particular. I don't know. Because I know that I do, wouldn't have to. Cats. Cats with cancer. Maybe, yes. Okay. Home, yes. Homeless cats with cancer. Yes. Uh, question three is what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? I'm the worst at that because people have been asking me my entire career, probably since I was 16 or 17, what's your favorite song? I actually started writing out a list of my favorite songs and I have that list still and I've updated it every so often, but it's got about 150 songs on it. <laughs> Uh, what's, uh, what's, not, what's the first, I know they're not in order of importance, but what was the first one you wrote? I don't know. Because, oh. you know, when you think of your first few, it's probably my first ten probably came out in one blob. So, favorite song and is always depending on mood. I'm, I've never been a, this is my song. It's always been like, these are my songs. Okay. I'm a musician and I'm a songwriter, so that's the worst question. Sorry. Okay. Well, not to push it, but if it's in the context of uh, meeting your maker, yeah. so it doesn't have to be a favorite song, but is there anything you'd want that would maybe set the tone or <laughs> like be a good bit of music to... You know? Maybe like Son of a Preacher Man, okay. <laughs> Dusty right, Springfield, something like that. Okay. Um, or like... Hold on, I'm coming, Sam and Dave. Something like that. I don't know. <laughs> it's just good. something cool. Just something. It'd probably be something of that tone. Something joyful. That's great. Hold on, I'm coming. Especially if you're walking slow. Yeah. Um, the reverse of that is what would be stuck on repeat in hell. Any song, if you hear it too many times, can be that. Sure. Sitting, I was actually sitting in Italy in a, in a, di- a lunch with um, Billy and our tour manager, Doug. And about... Well, Billy, Billy clocked it before I did. Um, that... Um, the song, um, I'm not in love. Okay. That was on repeat, and that was the only song that was playing while we were having lunch. And I didn't clock it. He clocked it before I did. It was probably on the third time it was around. And then we realized for the rest of the lunch, that was the song that was playing the That's entire so time. So any song that you hear too many times can become hell. Anything, um, anything in hell stuck on repeat is hell. Kind of. Okay. Kind of, yeah. All right, last question. What concert had the most profound effect on you as a fan? Honestly, probably watching, like, Isle of Wight or Woodstock as a kid with my mom. Because that's when I saw musicians just doing what they do and working together and just being weird and 
nothing I really saw myself in the flesh as a person, as a teenager, struck me as life-changing because, I mean, half the bands that I really wanted to see didn't come to Australia, so... I mean, really, those early concerts and stuff that I managed to see on television or DVD, that, that's really it. Uh, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Given your, probably being, given, yeah, probably being like eight or nine right. and watching those and just going, wow, like, you know, Hendrix is super weird and awesome, you know? <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, that was probably it for me. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, Katie, thank you so much. I know uh, your time is precious, and I appreciate, I appreciate you that. Me, you give me more than I uh, usually ask for, and I'm sorry for uh, keeping you long. No, no, it's just great. I just want to check out my hotel and whatnot and see the game gathering. Thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure. All right. A big, big thank you to Katie Cole, who gave me an extremely generous amount of her time. I actually think I might have made her late to the tour buses that were idling outside as I left our interview. So thank you, Katie, and I'm sorry, sorry. Sorry if I kept you too long and I made you late. Uh, to keep up with Katie, you can find her tour dates and the music, including her new EP, Things That Break Part 1, at katiecoleofficial.com. There you can link to all her social channels as well. As you heard me say in the podcast, she does a terrific job with social. Her Instagram is a favorite of mine and a great peek behind the scenes. And her YouTube, uh, there's always something new musically. She's always posting to that. It's, uh, it's well worth uh, your time to check out. Now, as for the Rockonomics podcast, we too can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'd love for you to engage with us there, so give us a shout-out, say hello, and let us know how we're doing. Feedback is always appreciated, good or bad. I know I'll regret saying that, but uh, hey, it's true. All right, episode 64 is heading towards the exits. Good night, Cleveland. Good night, Cleveland.